Welcome. Um, I'm excited that you've chosen to spend an hour of your fun week learning about anxiety. How fun is that? We're going to have a great time. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm kind of a weirdo, but talking about this stuff, actually, I, I do get very excited about it. And why I get excited is when we talk about the hard things, the hard things don't have as much power over us. When we understand the hard things, the scary things, um, when we give them attention, they actually get smaller um, over time, I will say. So um, in my profession as a therapist, when I have someone talking to me and sharing really heavy things, painful things, um, I feel with them. I'm a naturally very empathetic person. And at the same time, I feel this joy because I'm like, oh my gosh, praise God, they're not holding this on their own anymore. So people often say, how do you not burn out? Um, Definitely need to be aware and um, definitely uh, take care of myself, but also hearing those hard things that actually gives me hope and joy because I know that that person is one step closer to health and healing. So as you are here, even though we're going to talk about some heavy material, um, my hope is that you leave here with hope that you leave here feeling more empowered, um, either to handle and address and manage your own anxiety or to support a loved one who um, wrestles with anxiety. So that's my hope for you all today. And so as we start, I guess we should define what do I mean when I say anxiety, because we can all hear the same word but have different ideas of what that means. Um, so very simply, anxiety is fear of the future. So anxiety and fear are similar, but a key difference is fear is when something's happening right now. If you're walking in the forest and a bear pops out of a bush and starts chasing you, that's fear, right? <laughs> I am currently in danger. Um, if you're walking through the forest and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what if I see a bear? What if it starts chasing me? That's anxiety. You're anticipating. Anticipation is key with anxiety. What if is like the tagline of anxiety. So any thoughts you have of what if, what if, what if, that's anxiety. It's something that hasn't happened yet. So it's often, it's this feeling of worry or nervousness or uneasiness, often about some imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. That not knowing can make it so hard to shake the feeling of anxiety. And also, anxiety is a normal human emotion. We all experience it at some point in our lives. If you haven't yet, good for you. But um, the rest of us um, <laughs> have been anxious. Um, my, one of my best friends just had her first baby, and she, her baby had to be in the NICU for a week. It was very stressful. And when she brought the baby home, she experienced real anxiety for the very first time in her life. Um, and it really freaked her out. And she's getting... Um, support and meeting with a therapist and um, taking care of it. But yeah, at 35 years old, she experienced it for the first time. So, you know, it can come and hit us at any time. And um, it can serve a function. Stress and anxiety, to a certain degree, actually help us perform at our best. Because if you never worried about anything, um, you probably wouldn't perform very well at work or in other ways. Um, so just a little bit of stress motivates us to do our best. Um, but then when our stress level or our anxiety level becomes too high or it's so frequent, then it can get in the way of us living our lives 
and doing our best. And um, when anxiety becomes so intense um, or so frequent that people can't function normally, that's when we might say that they actually have an anxiety disorder. It's something that's actually diagnosable something I would diagnose. And that could be generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, unspecified anxiety disorder. But you don't necessarily have to meet all the criteria for a specific anxiety disorder for your anxiety to really cause problems for you or to be really difficult for you to manage. And so when we think about anxiety, so why, why do we experience anxiety? Where does it come from? And sometimes it's caused and then increased and fueled through our thought life. So how we think and what we think. I'm going to spend the majority of today talking about that. Um, sometimes it actually can have a medical physiological basis. Um, so I'm not a medical professional, so I can't go too much in depth. But I will say if I have a client coming to me and they either have depression or anxiety, I'll ask, when was the last time you had a physical? When was the last time you had some labs run? Um, and if it's been a while, I'll say, um, maybe go get, <laughs> we hear you. You are heard. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'll say, why don't you go, go get a physical and let them know you're having some mood disturbances and maybe they can run some labs. Because there are certain medical issues um, that can cause mood disturbances, that can contribute or cause depression or anxiety. So if that's the case, um, like a lot of times thyroid issue, issues will um, contribute to anxiety or depression. And there's others as well. So if that's really the root of the issue, you know, talk therapy isn't really going to help with that, right? Because it's a medical thing. So you can treat that, and then maybe your anxiety gets to go away as well. And that would be great, wouldn't it? Two for one. So um, I think it's just important to acknowledge that, that it can have that physiological basis. Um, and then also, some forms of anxiety can be really involuntary. We may not know why we're anxious. Um, we just know that we are. So again, sometimes that is because it's a medical issue. But other times, um, that is because our anxiety is rooted in traumatic experiences. And when we have anxiety, it's actually because um, we've experienced a trauma reminder, which I will define what that means for you. Um, and so again, we may not even know why we're anxious, but we just are. And I'm going to explain a little bit about trauma, how it impacts our brain, and how we perceive the world, and how that can cause anxiety for us. So the two main things I'm going to talk about are our thought lives and trauma. And trauma isn't a super fun topic again. But again, um, the more you understand, the less it has power over you. So if you get nothing else from our time together today, I would hope that you would really take into your inner being the truth that oftentimes our anxiety is not a sin issue we need to repent of, but a wound that needs Jesus' healing. And so often we can beat ourselves up um, if we're having any kind of issue, if we're feeling anxious, if we're feeling depressed, if we're feeling angry or upset, we can say, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling this way? This isn't okay. Um, and I often tell my clients, please be curious, not judgmental, because being judgmental towards yourself does not produce any fruit. It does not help anything. It just grinds you further into the ground and makes you feel worse and worse. 
curiosity than when we can explore what is going on for you. I wonder, I wonder what this anxiety is about. Then we can understand it, and then we can do something about it. So rather than beating ourselves up for being anxious and thinking, well, I'm not trusting God enough, this and that, um, sometimes that is true. Um, I will confess, I'm teaching this seminar because I am an anxious person. I veer towards anxiety, and I've learned how to manage it pretty well. Um, but there are a lot of times when I do have to recognize that I'm anxious because I'm not trusting in God's goodness. So sometimes that is the case. But then there's a lot of times where it's not about not trusting God. It's something more going on. And um, like if it's a medical issue, you wouldn't beat yourself up for, you know, having diabetes, right? Like, um, or having cancer, you know. Um, so why would you beat yourself up for having anxiety that has a physiological basis? So, and I could get on a soapbox about that, but I won't. Stay focused, Ari. Okay, so let's look at some scriptures because we're talking about healing anxiety through biblical principles. Also, I'm going kind of fast because I always run out of time, but if you're like, ah, slow down, please feel free to flag me down or something. <laughs> um, but let's look at some scriptures that actually talk about anxiety. So a lot of these are probably familiar to you. So Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this is a beautiful verse. Um, this can give us comfort or it can give us judgment. Because if we just look at do not be anxious about anything, it's like, well, shoot. <laughs> it's like, okay, easier said than done. Have you ever had someone, when you're really upset, have you ever said, had someone go like, you need, you need to calm down? <laughs> How well does that work? <laughs> I've had to teach my fiance not to do that to me. I'm like, don't fix it. You can't fix it. Um, so <laughs> just sit with me and my feelings. Um, and so, yeah, um, there's also that Bob Hope uh, or Bob Newhart um, sketch where he's the therapist. And what he does is she tells him all her problems and he says, stop it. And that's his treatment. He just yells, stop it at her. <laughs> and we laugh. They show that to us all the time in my grad program. And it's because, you know, we laugh because we know obviously that's not going to work. If it were that easy, she wouldn't be coming to therapy. If this were that easy to just not be anxious, you guys wouldn't be sitting in, 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 in an anxiety seminar, right? But that's not all that this passage says. It does give us some instruction. And there's a promise in here that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which can be present even if your circumstances are not peaceful, there's that promise that we will get that. And so there can be so much comfort in this verse. And at the same time, if we have anxiety and we do this and we're praying and we're still anxious, we can feel like something's wrong with us. Um, I will also say that um, this passage continues on to talk about what you should focus your thoughts on. It's that passage that says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is good, focus your mind on these things. So I think that context is important. We will revisit that. Next we have from Matthew, this is Jesus talking. 
And he says, therefore, um, and therefore, have you guys ever heard, when there's a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Um, because that means what he's saying now is based on something that he's already said. So before this, he's talking about treasure in heaven um, and how you cannot serve both God and money. So he's talking about not allowing the material things of life to become your idol, to become your top priority. So then he goes on to say, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, so much good wisdom in this. It's not just don't be anxious. He gives us some more reasoning. He gives us some more information, which, again, we will revisit. And then this is the last verse I like to share. Also Jesus talking to Martha, who is with her sister Mary, and Jesus has come to their home, and so all these people are there. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, just having a grand old time. Martha's running around, um, trying to be a good hostess, making sure everyone's okay, and she starts to get frustrated that her sister is not helping. And she says to Jesus, like, tell my sister to help me. And his response is, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So he acknowledges, he sees that Martha is anxious and troubled about many things, but that she doesn't necessarily have to be anxious and troubled about those things. So, but I also hear that compassion that he sees her and he gets it, um, but he also wants better for her. So with each of these passages and others in the New Testament, whenever you see the word worry or anxious, those are kind of used interchangeably, um, it's the same Greek word. And so I like to nerd out. And sometimes um, when there's a word in a text that I'm like, well, does that mean what I think it means? Or does it mean something else? Because in first century Rome um, or the Middle East, um, you know, they didn't know about anxiety, and they didn't know about um, what it looks like in the brain and the nervous system, right? <laughs> so maybe anxiety doesn't mean the same thing to them as it does to me as a 21st century therapist. So I looked up when it says worry or anxiety, it's the same word, and it means to be anxious about, so you're like, well, that's not very helpful, okay, um, to be careful or to take thought. So this is really important. So in the Bible, anxiety is in direct opposition to trusting in the goodness and the provision of God. Each of those passages is touching on that. And it's talking about the way we think. It's talking about how anxiety comes from the way we think. And instead of allowing ourselves to think about how good and faithful God is, we think about all these other things that may not be totally true or, um, yeah, are either complete lies or maybe are, yeah, not completely accurate, which we will talk more about. And this is important because these passages are not talking about anxiety that comes from a medical issue. It is not talking about anxiety that comes at, from a trauma 
reaction. So that is key because if you have anxiety that's coming from a medical issue or a trauma reaction, that is where simply praying and telling yourself it's okay, it's okay doesn't work, which when I get to talking about trauma, you'll understand more why that is. It's not about you. It's about your brain doing what it's supposed to do. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is what I do. Okay, stay focused, sorry. So let's look, before I get into trauma, though, let's look. The Bible does have some things to say about what we do when we feel this worry or anxiety. So let's look at that because... Um, you know, God is a good God. He's like the perfect parent. And good parents don't just tell their kids, stop it or knock it off. They tell them why, right? They explain why if, if you're punishing a kid, if you're giving them a consequence, the best thing to do is to explain why they're getting that consequence so they learn. Um, if they don't understand why and they're not connecting the bad behavior with the consequence, you know, they're just going to keep doing it. So God knows. He says, um, he doesn't just say, knock it off. He says, and this is what you can do instead or this is what you can do to help. So let's see. What does Jesus say? So I love when Jesus says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Isn't that a great rhetorical question? Because what's the answer? No one. None of us has figured out how to like add hours to our lives, right? If you have, let me know. We can talk later. But no. and. Um, this is such a great point. It seems obvious, but often the first step is realizing that our worry does not help anything. And a lot of times, there's still a part of us, even though, yeah, we can look at that and say, well, of course not. That's totally irrational. But guess what? We're not always completely rational beings. And our minds are not always completely rational. And I find a lot of times with myself and with my clients that, um, you know, there's actually some part of them that thinks that their anxiety is helping the situation. I'll ask them, what would it be like if, if you weren't thinking about this constantly? And they're like, well, I, I don't know, but I, I have to. And I'm like, well, why? And they don't know, but there's just this sense deep inside that if they don't worry, then the bad thing will happen. And when we take a step back, it's like, well, obviously that's not that's not true. That doesn't make any sense. So we need to acknowledge that our worry does not help. And again, not in a beating ourselves down kind of way, but just in a let's keep it real. Let's live in reality because that's where God lives. Um, and noticing that our worry does not help anything. And then I'm going to share some questions with you that I often ask my clients and then I teach them to ask themselves to help um, to identify what are some thoughts um, that are causing anxiety or are there some ways that you can shift your thoughts so that it doesn't create so much anxiety. So one question is, um, if there's a situation you're worried about, is just simply asking, is there anything I can do about this right now? Um, like if you have a you know, a presentation at work and you're nervous about it, like that's pretty understandable to be nervous about that. Um, but if you can't sleep the night before, to think through, well, is there anything I still need to do for that? Is there any way I could prepare more? Um, so maybe it's going through your presentation one more time before bed. Um, but some people, that'll never be enough. You know, they'll just like go over it and over it and over it. But sometimes, if you are able to just do 
what needs to be done, you can calm down and be like, okay, well, I've, I've done what I can. And then sometimes there isn't anything you can do. And at that point, it's acknowledging, hey, like I've done all I can up to this point and I have to let it go. And that sometimes is very hard because we don't like to acknowledge the fact that we're not in control of everything and <laughs> that we actually are powerless in a lot of situations. We do not like that. Um, but it is reality, that is true. Um, so we do have to work to try to let it go if there's nothing we can do in a certain situation to accept that powerlessness. Um, and again, that's easier said than done. So if there is nothing you can do about a certain situation that you're anxious about, um, and you're still feeling a lot of worry or dread, I ask people to play out their worst case scenario. And you might be thinking, well, that seems backwards. Isn't that just going to make them more anxious? Um, and strangely enough, no. Most of the time, no. Um, and this is what happens. So if, um, so if you're worried about the presentation you have to give at work tomorrow, and I say, OK, well, what's, what's the worst case scenario? What are you afraid of? Because um, a lot of times, anxiety, it's nebulous. It's unclear. And then when I ask people, what are you actually afraid might happen? They're like, I, I don't even know. And it's like, OK, so you're, you don't even know what you're afraid of. <laughs> and so again, if we can name it, if we can make it concrete, then we can do something about it. So what's your worst case scenario? Well, I guess that I trip over my words, and my PowerPoint gets out of whack, um, and you know, I, I don't do my best, and I'll be embarrassed. OK, then what would happen? So then you say, and then what? Um, well, like, my coworkers might be like, might judge me um, or something like that. OK, yeah, that, that wouldn't be great. But then what would happen? Well, we'd all go back to work, and people would probably forget about it by the end of the day. OK, so is that the end of the world? Is that worth you losing sleep over? No. So yeah, I mean, that would still be hard. That was, you'd still feel embarrassed. Like, so not saying, get over it, but just saying, let's put this in its rightful place. In your mind, it's this huge mountain. It's Mount Everest. And when you say it out loud and you actually put some shape to it, it's a pebble. It's like, yeah, it's still there. It's still a thing. But it, it does not deserve to take up so much of your energy and so much of your headspace. Does that make sense? Awesome. If it doesn't, it's OK. Let me know. Um, so yes, yeah, so playing out your worst case scenario can actually help. You might still, it still might be a stressful situation, but it, it will help you to put it in its rightful place. Because some things, yeah, we should be stressed about. Um, I'm, so I, I laugh that I'm teaching on this, because I'm like in one of the most stressful seasons of my life, because I'm getting married in less than two months, which is awesome. We're also moving. We thought it was a great idea to adopt a dog. Like, we are idiots. <laughs> but he's such a good dog, so. Um, and so, you know, I get anxious about things all the time, because there's always something to do. My brain is spinning. And so early on, I had to find ways to set limits on what I could focus on and what I could think about, because I wasn't going to, you know, our engagement is five or six months. And it's like, I won't sleep at all if I don't put some limits on what I'm allowed to think about when. And so I've done this a lot, 
when I feel nervous or anxious, you know, and again, I've trained my fiance. He's like, what's your worst case scenario? Um, it's really cute when he tries to use therapist talk on me. I'm like, oh, I know what you're doing, honey. Good job. Um, and so um, it'll be like, well, okay, I'm afraid like that this may not happen. Okay, well, would that ruin our wedding for you? No, it'd just kind of be like, ah, oh, that sucks. But we keep coming back to, at the end of the day, we're gonna be married to each other. That's really all that matters. As long as our officiants show up and we show up, like we're gonna get what we want out of it. Um, and that just grounds me, it helps me, you know, instead of being like, it would be the end of the world, it's like, ah, oh, I might be kind of disappointed. Um, and it's not the end of the world. So with all this, we also have to develop an awareness of our thoughts. Um, and this is something we often do not have. I notice um, most people are not aware of what they're thinking. Um, when I have someone who has a very extreme emotion, so let's say anxiety, I'll ask, is there a thought that goes with that anxiety? And what I mean is, um, is that anxiety fueled by a negative thought that's causing it, causing the anxiety? And a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know. Huh. And, um, and as we explore, they're like, oh, I guess I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin this, and then everyone's going to be mad at me. Okay, yeah. If I was thinking that, I would probably feel anxious too. So if we can be aware of our thoughts and the way we think, um, we can do something with it. And we have so many thoughts that come through our mind. Um, we have thousands of thoughts that come through our mind every minute. So it would make sense that not every single one of them is accurate, right? Like, there's going to be some riffraff that gets in there, right? Um, and the Bible talks about our thoughts. It talks about our minds. It talks about, you know, that God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Bible talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's powerful. Um, it also says we take every thought captive for Christ. So there's several passages in scripture that talk about how important our minds are to our spiritual life. I had a spiritual director a while ago who used to always say, the spiritual battle is a battle for the mind. And, you know, as Albert was sharing that, you know, Satan just, he doesn't just give you this flat out lie. He just plants a little, a little something. And when the distorted thoughts we believe, when they're just a little untrue, that can be so hard to really um, dig that up and unearth it because it's still a little true. And so um, if we can be aware of what these thoughts are and then question, well, is this, is this even true? Is this accurate? Does this deserve to have space in my mind? Then we have some power. A lot of times we just let whatever thought come in and make its home in our mind and it's totally untrue. And it runs our life, and it influences the way we feel. It influences the way that we relate to others. So we all have distorted beliefs. It's not, it's not like just the weirdos. No, all of us have distorted beliefs. I have distorted beliefs. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, so this um, diagram comes from a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, so cognitive being thinking. Um, and the idea here is that our feelings don't come from events themselves. They come from our beliefs 
about the event. And so we all kind of have these lenses that we view the world through. And um, those lenses get shaped and changed based on experiences, based on things we learn, lots of different stuff. And so you and I can have the exact same experience. And we could have totally different feelings about the experience because our lenses are different, because we've had different past experiences that color the way we interpret the world. We could go to the exact same movie. I could love it. You could hate it. Um, we could hear the same um, preacher speak. And I might think he's egotistical and controlling. And you might think, like, whoa, he really speaks with authority. I like that. So, we have to be aware that perception is everything. And then we also have to humble ourselves and realize that our perception may not always be completely accurate. This is also so important for you married couples. Because <laughs> how many of you, you know, your spouse gives you a look and you start making up stories of what that look means. And so then you're all upset at them. And really, they're just trying to remember what the grocery list is. But you think that they're glaring at you. <laughs> and, I had, um, I used to run this intern program, and in our first meeting, I was going through kind of like the handbook and everything, and this guy, he was just watching me like this. And I was like, he's just scowling at me. Like, does he hate this? Like, does he, what's his deal? But then over time, as I spent lots of time in Bible studies, I realized that's his I'm paying attention and listening to you face. And so, but it was really off-putting. And so if I had just been like, whoa, he's a jerk. Like, he's, like, judging me. He's not nice. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, my perception was wrong. So we need to, um, when we have an experience and we notice we have a reaction, it's really important to stop and be like, well, is that completely true? How do I know that's true? So some more questions to ask yourself when you have identified a thought um, or a belief that you're having that goes with your anxiety. So it might be, um, I can never do anything right. Um, well, if that were true, yeah, I'd be anxious all the time because um, I'd be like, I'm just going to fail all the time, and that sucks. Um, but to ask ourselves, so how true is this? How do I know it's true? How do I, how do I know that I'm going to fail at everything I try? Um, what evidence do I have to support that? Well, I failed at this, this, and this. Okay, but is there any evidence against it? Well, I graduated college. I got my master's. I have a private practice. Um, I have, I've succeeded in all these things. Okay, so I guess it's not true that I fail at everything I try, right? Um, but we can do that. We can generalize to be like, well, nothing good ever happens to me. And it's like, nothing ever? Really? And so, um, but we do that. And so when you can take the thought and say, really, does nothing good ever happen to me? OK, what's the evidence for that? All this bad stuff has happened to me. OK, that's real. Absolutely. But is there any evidence against that? Has anything good ever happened to you? Oh, well, I have, I have my baby girl, and she's amazing. Or I have um, this great group of friends. Or, OK. So maybe it's not that nothing good ever happens to me. Maybe, it's, maybe a more accurate thought is I've had a lot of hardship in my life, and, and it's affecting me, and it's hard. And I've also had a lot of joy in my life. So we're not doing this is not sugarcoating. It's not sweeping the hard things under the rug, but it's allowing 
our thoughts to be more accurate. And it's okay to acknowledge, like, no, this has been hard. I've had really hard things in my life. Oh, voicemail. Um, but it's just, again, putting it in its rightful place. It's not this. Maybe it's this, right? So another question we can ask is, does God have anything to say about this? And we can also have distorted beliefs about ourselves and distorted beliefs about God. And when I have Christian clients come to me and I see that um, they have really distorted views of themselves and God um, and who he is and how he feels towards them, it breaks my heart because they know scripture, they know truth, but it's like, oh, but not me. Like, yeah, God is love, but not for me. And it's like, you know, I would never say this because it's incredibly insensitive, but if we think about it, it's like, wow, you're the one person on earth that God doesn't love? Like, you're special. But it's like, but we do that, right? Like, how many of you are like, oh, everyone else is great, everyone's perfect, but not me? Like, oh, everyone's fine, but I'm, I'm the failure. Or everyone's fine, but I always mess up. We, we do that. We're our own worst critics, right? So we all do that in, in different ways. So we also need to be aware of what distorted beliefs do we have about God? And what distorted beliefs do we have about our, our identity as children of God? So if we think I'm worthless, okay, well, what, is, what does God have to say about that? I'm pretty sure he has some opinions about that um, because there's so many scriptures of how valuable we are to God. That's the entire gospel, that we are so valuable to him that he sacrificed his son for us. So for us to say, I'm worthless, like, oh my gosh, how do we even get that idea? But we get it, again, our lenses, right? We have different experiences, we learn different things, and it impacts the way um, we view ourselves, others, and God. So if we can be aware of our lenses and what is getting in the way of having accurate perception, then we can take some control over our thought life. Then we can take some control over our anxiety or other difficult negative emotions. And again, negative emotions, hard emotions aren't all bad. They all serve a function. But I always tell people, your emotions are telling you something. So don't just shove them down. Don't just ignore them. They're trying to tell you something. Um, and they all serve a purpose. So. We do have control over our thoughts and attitudes, so we don't have to be victims of our anxiety if our anxiety is wrapped up in our thought lives. So that is wonderful news. The Bible talks to us about that. Um, however, we don't always have control over trauma reactions. And so anxiety that's a symptom of trauma needs a different approach. So simply trying to change our thoughts is usually not enough if our anxiety is coming from trauma. So talking about trauma, so defining this, because again, people have different ideas of what trauma means. And it comes from the Greek word for wound, which I think is very appropriate. Um, you know, we can have our physical traumas, like a head trauma. But then I'm, of course, talking about psychological and emotional trauma. And my favorite definition of trauma is a distressing experience that changes one's view of themselves and the world around them. And a lot of times, think, people think that trauma is reserved for veterans who've been in battle, um, you know, first responders, um, maybe people who grew up in physically or sexually abusive homes. So when we think of trauma, we're like, oh, it has to be this life-threatening event, 
or something just so horrible. And that, that definitely fits in this definition, but this broadens it because there can be what I call little t traumas. So maybe it's not that your life was in danger, but maybe just um, there's kind of this sense of instability in your life. So an example I use is um, maybe you had a parent with a chronic illness, and they're a great parent, they did their best, but the reality is their illness kept them from being able to be present for you all the time and consistently. So when you came home from school, um, you didn't know, um, is dad going to be up and about and happy and feeling great? Is dad going to be in bed? Um, or am I going to find dad like in a bad state and need to call an ambulance? You know, that instability, um, that affects the way we view the world. It can help or it can make us um, view the world as, you know, unpredictable and unsafe. And that can be traumatic. And there's also something called developmental trauma, which is similar to what I just explained, but it's just these little things that happen throughout our development as children and teenagers into adulthood, where, yeah, maybe, um, maybe our parents weren't physically abusive, but maybe we had a really, really critical parent who just tore us down um, and never affirmed us for anything that we did or accomplished. You know, that, those are little things. It's like acid dropping on a rock and slowly eating away at it, right? So those can be traumas. It's just anything that changes your view of yourself and the world around you, that impacts your sense of safety, that impacts your, sa your sense of being in control of your life, because a key thing with trauma is feeling powerless or out of control. So as I'm saying this, you might be like, huh, maybe that does fit for me. And I will say, if you're a human being, you have experienced trauma most likely because we live in a fallen, broken world. And there's people, there's hurting people around us who hurt others. And that's a pretty normal thing, unfortunately. So I want to normalize this and say that this isn't just for the crazy people. This isn't just for people having PTSD flashbacks and nightmares, even though that can be part of it. And I'll say, I have trauma. Um, most people I see have trauma. But again, we may not know, and a lot of times people say, oh, like, I never thought of it like that. And it's so important. If we can identify that it's trauma, then we can do something about it. I'm a broken record. I keep saying that. Because trauma um, requires a different approach. And so if we know that that's what it is, if I'm doing cognitive behavioral therapy with someone, but really the root of all their negative thoughts is trauma, we're just spinning our wheels. So let me explain why. So trauma actually changes how our brains function at its most basic levels. And um, this diagram is showing something called triune brain theory. It's the idea that we have three brains in one. So we have on the top the blue, the neocortex. Um, that's our rational or thinking brain. That's the part of our brain that really sets us apart from animals. Um, next, we have our limbic brain, which is our emotional brain. But it's also um, our alarm center. That kidney bean-looking structure is called the amygdala. And that is when your brain perceives a threat, that sends the alarm, and you go into fight or flight um, so that you can survive and protect yourself. And then we have the reptilian brain, which is the brainstem and the cerebellum. And that takes care of automatic functioning. So breathing, your heart beating, your stomach digesting, things that we can't stop. You know, you can't tell your brain, stop making my heart beat. 
like that doesn't work and you wouldn't want to do that anyway, don't do that. Um, so trauma impacts what I call the lower, because they're lower in our brain, the lower parts of our brain, the limbic system, the mammalian brain, or the, and the reptilian brain. Because this is where survival and automatic functions take place. And anxiety is a normal response to an abnormal situation. And these primitive brain structures, as I call them, um, these lower brain structures, um, they are very good at taking in as much sensory information as possible when there's a trauma going on. And then if they experience anything either internally or externally that reminds them of that traumatic experience, they go into high alert mode, even if there is no real threat. So trauma makes us perceive threats where there are none because your brain is trying to protect you from going through another horrible experience. So remember our lenses, so trauma colors our lenses as well. And so an example I use is if you're in a city and you're walking down the street and maybe someone comes out with a knife and is like, give me your wallet. And you do and then they run away, so you're okay, but that's really scary. I would prefer that to not ever happen to me. Um, so it's scary, you notice you're going into fight or flight. There's also freeze, so that's really important because a lot of times people actually freeze and that's when your nervous system perceives that it's actually more dangerous to try to fight or to try to run away. It'll freeze, like literally playing possum. Um, and in the animal kingdom, there are some animals where that's their defense because like if a lion catches a smaller animal, it'll go limp in its mouth and like the lion doesn't want it anymore because they're like, oh, it's dead, lame. And they leave it and then the animal hops away and is fine. And so humans, we do that too sometimes. Um, so, and people can feel a lot of shame because they might be like, um, if they're assaulted or something, and they might go into freeze and then they'll say, I didn't even do anything, so it's really my fault because I didn't fight back or I didn't try to run. And it's like, no, it's not because your nervous system, your brain was taking over and it was perceiving that the safest thing for you to do is to freeze. So I like to just um, acknowledge that as well. Um, so maybe when you're getting mugged at knife point, maybe you freeze and you force, like you somehow are able to reach into your pocket and give your wallet, but maybe you're frozen. Um, maybe you're like, all right, let's go. Like maybe you go into fight, that's not me, I'm a freezer. Um, or maybe you run. But for most of us, we would, we would know probably the safest thing is just to freeze and give the wallet. Um, so then maybe a couple months later, you're walking down the street in another city. And all of a sudden, your heart rate starts to increase. Um, your hands get tingly. Um, your mouth gets dry. Um, and you start maybe getting lightheaded. So you're experiencing the physical sensations of anxiety. Um, which are very similar to the physical sensations of fight or flight. And you have no idea why, and you're like, what is wrong with me? So what you're not consciously aware of is that while you were getting mugged a couple months ago, there was a Chinese food restaurant down the street, and you were smelling some Chinese food. And now you're walking down the street, and you're in front of a Chinese food restaurant, and you're smelling it. And so your brain has associated the smell of Chinese food with that threat. So that's just an example. So, and it can be anything. It can also be internal feelings. 
Um, you know how people say, I feel it in my gut, or my gut's telling me. So um, it may not be that obvious. So this can be so hard, um, because we may not have any idea of what those trauma reminders are. Um, so a lot of times when I have clients who have PTSD or just they do have a history of trauma, I try to help them identify what are those trauma reminders so we can know, um, so that we can tell it like it is. Um, another important point here is that when we are experiencing trauma, when we go into fight or flight, when we are being threatened, the neocortex, you know, the part that's our logical thinking, rational brain, that shuts down. When we go into fight or flight, our, the lower brain structures decide what we need to survive and what we don't need. And your rational thinking brain is not seen as necessary. So if we go back to the bear in the woods analogy, if I'm running away from a bear, I don't really need um, logic. I don't need to be like, what kind of bear is this chasing me? Or what kind of tree is this that I'm scrambling up? No, that's useless. That will slow me down. All I need is for my body to work, right? So um, when we're first traumatized, our rational thinking brain goes offline. When we have a trauma reminder, our rational thinking brain goes offline. This is why simply um, addressing our thoughts does not work. So that is the key here. So that is where we can read all the scripture, we can pray, and it may not help us because our rational thinking brain is gone and it's not responsive. And so I want that to be so clear because again, people beat themselves up. They're like, what's wrong with me? I'm going crazy. And it's like, no, you're not. Your brain is doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's just doing it in the wrong context. Um, I like to say the amygdala, the alarm center, it's like the overly helpful friend who's actually not that helpful. <laughs> um, like they're like, oh, let me come help you. Let me come clean your house. Um, but then they're actually not good at it, so then you have to go and clean up after them. Or it's like when your kid wants to help you make dinner, and you're like, oh, gosh, no. Um, but you do it because you love them and blah, blah, blah. But, um, but it's actually not that helpful. So the amygdala, it is helpful when you actually are being threatened, and it helps you to pick up on that so that you can respond and stay alive. But when it's picking up on information that it thinks is threatening, that actually isn't threatening, then that can be a problem because then that causes you to have anxiety or panic attacks um, and you're actually okay. But you're not weird, you're not crazy. It's just how our brains work. So with working with trauma, we can't just tell the brain it's okay. We have to show it it's okay. And we actually have to address these lower parts of the brain because we can't use logic. We kind of have to find a back door and there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, there's a few specific treatments for trauma. And this, this specific topic, there's so much more research and understanding because we are able to like map the brain and look at a brain when it's being um, triggered, when it is having a, a trauma flashback. Um, and we can see what parts of the brain are affected. We know that um, cortisol, which is a stress hormone that we release when we're in fight or flight, um, that that impacts our hypothalamus, which is our memory center. So often you might hear that people don't really remember things if they've been through a traumatic experience. That's why. It impacts our memory. So now that we know that, we can be like, you know, 
like, okay, that makes sense, instead of like, well, th did this really happen to that person? They don't even know what happened. Uh, so understanding it is such a gift. Um, I'm gonna name some different treatments. I can't go into all of them, but if, you're, if this is resonating with you and you wanna know more and maybe do some more research, I'll give you these names. Um, one that's been around since the 80s is called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. I will tell you if you look it up, it looks like craziness. Um, it looks cuckoo. Um, when you first, when I explain it to clients, I'm always like, I know this sounds like witchcraft, it's not. Um, it, it's, um, it has empirical evidence. Um, I have experienced it both as a client and as a therapist. So I myself have experienced EMDR and then I have watched my clients um, change and grow through EMDR. Um, it's also, people like it because you don't necessarily have to talk about the trauma. You have to think about it, but you don't have to say things out loud. And it can be really hard to talk about. Um, and then also there's a newer uh, treatment that came out of EMDR called brain spotting. It's a little different, but similar. Um, also, expressive arts can be really helpful because also trauma impacts the language center of our brain. So if I ask someone, you know, what was that like when that happened to you? They may not have any words for it, but there's a whole lot of feelings and stuff inside. So if I give them some art supplies and a big piece of paper, they can express what that was like for them in a less um, concrete way. But then when we look at their drawing, then they can start talking. I can say, okay, what is it? What do you feel when you look at this drawing? And then they can say angry, disgusted, um, scared. And then we can talk about it. So often doing creative expression, it's accessing you know, the more emotional part of our brain, not the logical part of our brain. Also somatic therapies. So somatic therapy is using our bodies. Um, and also, so using your body is a really great way to heal trauma. Um, I will tell people when you have um, a flashback or you've been triggered, do something physical that you couldn't do during the trauma because that's showing your brain, no, 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 this isn't happening again, it's okay. You can't just tell it, you have to show it. So I had a client who, um, was a, she's a teenage girl and she um, sustained some pretty severe sexual abuse throughout her childhood. And she got anxious in the car with friends one day. And her friends were awesome and super supportive. And so she just said, hey, I'm starting to get anxious. Can you pull over? And she got out of the car and did jumping jacks. And I thought that was brilliant. Because if you're in danger, you don't have time to do jumping jacks, right? So actually, so doing what you couldn't. Um, I'll have clients when we're you know, talking about something, especially if you're restricted, whether you're in a car accident and you're trapped in a car or you were you know, held down during an assault, doing what you couldn't. I've had people punch pillows. I've had people get up and walk around my office so they can experience. I, I am free. I'm able to move wherever I want. I am in control right now. So sometimes um, engaging your body can be really helpful. So it can be really hard to discern sometimes what kind of worry or anxiety you have. Um, so you may not know, you might be kind of on the fence right now, like, well, I don't know, it, do I have some trauma? Is it just my thought life? And often the two overlap because trauma does change the way we perceive the world. So we can develop some negative beliefs 
from our trauma, so often they can go together. But if you are you know, asking yourself all the questions I shared with you about your thoughts and you are kind of becoming aware of your thoughts and challenging them, but it's, you just feel like you're running into a wall over and over, there's a chance that, yeah, it could be actually a trauma reaction. Um, so it's really important for us to develop emotional awareness um, and you know, asking, is this just my thoughts or is there something deeper that goes beyond my conscious thinking? Because trauma goes beyond our conscious awareness. And to even ask if we do start feeling anxious seemingly out of nowhere, to ask, well, did anything trigger me? Um, what does this situation, this person, whatever, what does it remind me of? That can be a really helpful question. If there's a certain person that just really gets to you, um, it can be helpful to say, who does this remind me of? Um, I had a client, I worked in a group home for foster youth, and I had a 16-year-old female client that I really liked sometimes, but then every once in a while, she would just get into this mood, and I would just be like so done with her. I would, I would kind of turn into a teenager and like be petty, um, not outwardly, but inside. And my supervisor and I were talking about it, and she said, who does she remind you of? And I was like, no one, she's just a brat. And she's like, who does she remind you of? And I'm like, oh. And I was like, she reminds me of my big sister, um, who's a recovering alcoholic. And for most of my childhood and teen years, she was just super bossy, my way or the highway, didn't really care about others. And so she totally reminded me of her. And so then I was able to be like, OK, well, she's not her. And I was able to um, change the way I viewed. But I needed to be aware of that, that she was reminding me of someone um, who wasn't safe for me growing up. So um, that, that's another um, question you can ask yourself. And also to maybe think about your anxiety, maybe even mapping it out and saying, is, is there anything, is there any commonality? Are there certain situations where I tend to get anxious? And then again, be curious. Um, it might be social settings. It might be places where you feel trapped. Um, that's often a theme. Um, so if you can be aware, are there certain situations or types of people that I tend to feel um, more anxious around? That can also help you trace your anxiety back to its roots. So again, we really need to be curious. That being curious, not judgmental, is so important. And as I've said before, feelings do demand to be felt. They do serve a purpose. They're trying to tell us something. And so if we just keep stuffing it and stuffing it, it's like we're ignoring this message that our brains and bodies are trying to send to us. And our feelings are tenacious. They will find a way out. And I have found for myself personally and for my clients that when we let our feelings have their place in the natural, legitimate way they're meant to have it, um, it's a lot less damaging when they, than when they find other ways to come out. And we might try to cope with our anxiety um, through food, through relationships, through substances, through sex, through staying busy. Um, and Christians were really good at using church and service um, to be our drug of choice, honestly. Um, and we look really holy and like, what great servants. But really, we're just trying to avoid our feelings. And we're just trying to stay busy. And that's not what God wants of us. He doesn't want us to to give from that place. So we can do that. So we need to acknowledge our pain. We need to acknowledge our anxiety because we don't need to be ashamed of it. You don't need to be ashamed of it. 
And God is compassionate. God understands. He wants to remove your anxiety from you. He wants you to live your life to the full. And also we need to realize we ultimately have reassurance in Christ because we know he has made all things right. Um, it doesn't mean we're not going to have hard things in this life. Obviously, I'm sure you've already figured out, of course, you're going to have hard things in this life. But we know that ultimately we will be okay. We know that our souls are secure with him. He will give us what we need, whether it's to recover from our traumas or from our negative thoughts that have taken root in our mind. And we can think, you know, that would be awful, but I know I would be okay as, you know, as we heard this morning, we can rest in the promises of God. It's not always easy, but it is true and it is possible. And again, I will say, just as I started, that if you get nothing else from this hour, I hope that you would leave here knowing that if you um, experience anxiety, it's not necessarily a sin issue that you need to repent of, but it might just be a wound that needs Jesus' healing. And I fully believe that Jesus is willing to help you with that and be a part of that with you, whatever path you choose to take. So as we close, I just want to pray for us um, and wherever you're at. So let's pray. God, thank you that you are the healer. You are the good physician. God, you know each of our hearts and our minds and our bodies, and you know what is going on inside of each of us right now. And Lord, I ask that for each of us, wherever we're at, we can bring our whole and complete selves to you. That, um, yeah, we won't just bring the polished parts, that we can bring our anxieties to you, cast our cares on you, and that... Um, we will have peace and rest in knowing that we are not God, you are, and we don't have to have it all figured out. And pray that you give the people here wisdom and understanding for their anxiety, that they could discern what it's about, if there is some trauma that needs some healing, if there are some thought patterns that need to be adjusted and questioned. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will give them that wisdom and that understanding so they know how to step forward um, and to seek transformation through you. And thank you that you don't leave us on our own. Um, I ask that each person here would leave here knowing that you are with them and you're, you're in this process with them. So God, I, I entrust each of these precious souls to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you so much.